And now, this is Nehemiah chapter 13. These are God's words, and so we'd be wise to listen. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliasha the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. This is Nehemiah. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food, Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you were doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the, Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. 
Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliasha, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Today, as Paul said, we are concluding our study in the book of Nehemiah. As we have said nearly each week, um, the book of Nehemiah tells the story of God's people rebuilding the broken down walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah is all about building a new Jerusalem, a new city of God, which is precisely what the church is called to do today. And so we've been turning to the book of Nehemiah in order to learn how we should go about doing that. So when the church is in disrepair, what should Christians be doing? In the midst of a society that cares very little for the purpose of holiness or the word of God, what should be our posture as his people? Last week, we saw the walls and city of Jerusalem dedicated with gladness, thanksgiving, and with singing. We witnessed God's city repopulated with his, his purified people. The city of Jerusalem in chapter 11 is renamed as the holy city, the first time it's been called that in this book. The stones of broken Jerusalem, once left for dead in exile, are restored once again to their proper places. And God's son, Israel, is in a real way, resurrected and reestablished. So as we build God's house, we too are called to be a people of great celebration. There is much to celebrate. We are a people purified by our king. We are God's holy city where God himself dwells and welcomes the nations. And we too sing songs of thankfulness and gladness to our God and we do intend for it to be heard by all. Today we've come to the end of Nehemiah. While much in Nehemiah is positive in its tone, the book ends on a far more subdued tone. Israel is in need of reform after some years of disobedience. And so we'll be talking about the corruptions that Nehemiah finds in temple worship, in the Sabbath, and intermarriage. And we'll be talking about what that means for us as we seek to build God's city among the cities of man. If you remember, in Nehemiah 10, the people made a, a firm oath to do the following, to refrain from intermarriage with the surrounding people of the lands, to honor the Sabbath, and to attend to God's house. And when we left the story last week, everything was, was looking really, really good, pretty much near perfect. However, as we, as we just read, and as we see here, they're falling back into the old ways that had them sent into exile in the first place. Now, most of Nehemiah 
occurred around the, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. But the final chapter moves forward many years, according to verse 6, to around the 32nd year of Artaxerxes' reign. So by this time, Nehemiah had been governor of Jerusalem for over a decade. But there is a point here where Nehemiah returns to King Artaxerxes, and that makes sense because he's the cupbearer, and he has a post to which he has to return. But in his absence, things begin to unravel in Jerusalem. Let's read again in verse 4. Before this, now before this, uh, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, important point, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. To verse 7. And I, Nehemiah, came back to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense." Just, just from the literature, we, we don't know how long Nehemiah is gone from Jerusalem. But we do know that while he's gone, it's this corruption that takes place. And there are a few reasons why this is very significant. So Eliashib is the high priest. Not just a priest, but the high priest. And as the high priest, he is the one most responsible for the worship and temple life of Israel. However, what we find out here is that Eliashib has given Tobiah an Ammonite. He's just given him one of the temple chambers for his own personal use. Why? Well, because Eliashib is related to Tobiah through marriage. Israel has allowed their high priest's family to intermarry with the family of their greatest opponent. Do you remember Tobiah? He's been around since chapter 1. He's been one of, one of Israel's fiercest opponents, and yet now he is married to the high priest's family. And this has opened them up. This has opened up Israel to, to really to the very worst of compromises. The chamber housed elements that made worship in God's house possible. The grain offering, wine, the oil, the grain tithe, the vessels, all of these things. But Israel has allowed an enemy to essentially set up a man cave in the middle of God's house. And it's, it's displaced and sacrificed the proper worship of God. In addition to this, as we read, the portions that were owed to the Levites and the singers to feed and support their work in the temple have been withheld. So the very people that Israel, the very people that they, were, that they had vowed to support have no support and they're forced to provide for themselves, to go back to their own fields and farm in these lands with no help from anyone else. And that was not the divinely intended practice. As Nehemiah says, the house of God is forsaken. Israel has violated their oath to care for God's house. Now when we read this, I think, I think we can think, well, gosh, that, that does sound bad. That does sound terrible. 
God's, God's people are not able to worship him and they're actually providing for their enemy in God's house. So what, what does that mean for us just sitting here today? Well, what, what if we decided to stop having Sunday gatherings? We make an announcement next week. Hey, everyone, from now on going forward, we will no longer meet on Sundays, but we do want to let you know that we have, we're going to set up a living space in the sanctuary to house a local group of atheists. Also, Paul, Jenna, the band, and I, we're going to start working off of 19th Street because the elders are withholding our paychecks. That would be kind of the equivalent of what's going on if it happened to us. What, what do we even conceive, what do we even believe that would do to the life, to our life as the people of God? What would that do to the life of the world? See, Israel had forgotten that temple worship made possible the communication of God's loving gifts to the people. Brothers and sisters, that's why the Sunday gathering is so important because it's here that God renews his covenant with us every week. And I know this is something that we've talked about often during Nehemiah, but it's so important for us to come back to. It's in this gathering. We've already experienced a lot of this. It's in this gathering that God has welcomed us. He's called us to himself. He's forgiven us. He gives us his peace. He receives our offerings. He receives our prayers. He teaches us. He feeds us. And then he sends us back out into the world to be his people. But even in that, we don't gather just for ourselves. I think it's very important to know this, to very important to hear this part. We don't gather just for ourselves. We are gathering for the sake of the world. Because the world needs all of those elements, all of the elements in our temple chamber here. And if we displace that for something else, we really lose what makes us God's people. The world needs to know what it means to be forgiven to be welcomed by God into his house, to be given his peace, to eat with friends in peace, to be taught and guided and instructed. How should we live? The whole world needs to know that. So see, even if we see a little bit of that, what we notice today is that we're not just here to sing some songs and listen to a message. We're actually being trained in what it's like to live with God and what it's like to transact with him. And every single element of this gathering is something that the world needs. There are people who don't feel welcome and far from God. We start with a call to worship. Come, come near. <laughs> there are people who are burdened with sin and they don't, they don't feel like they could be forgiven. God says, come here, you'll find forgiveness. There are people who don't know, how should I live? What's the best way? Who will teach me? Who will guide me? God says, I will. Who's going to feed me? I don't know how to sustain strength. Come and eat at my table. All of these things. Nehemiah knew the importance. He knew the importance of Israel's temple life. He confronted the officials. He quickly evicted Tobiah. 
He filled the chamber again with the proper elements and set guards over it and asked God to remember his good deeds. And we'll come back to that. But let's keep reading. Verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. So the Sabbath was a day of rest for God's people. And in the creation story, God worked for six days and rested on the seventh. And so, therefore, he instructs the people, he has instructed his people to live in the same rhythm, to do the same as he does. And Nehemiah sees the people of Judah laboring on the Sabbath, which is contrary to the oath they've taken. They're bringing their produce into the city, engaging in trade, and simultaneously welcoming merchants in to sell their wares. Now, as I said a few weeks ago, Israel, Israel was meant to be a Sabbath people, to be a people who not only rest, but who offer rest to other people, who offer rest to the world. But see, here in Nehemiah's absence, they have neglected the Sabbath rest. They have also neglected to invite others into that rest. They've actually invited others into unrest by continuing to work on the Sabbath. And much like his response to the violations of temple worship, Nehemiah is quite angry. See, so he's, he's thrown Tobiah out of the temple, but now he throws the merchants out of the city and tells them that if, if they loiter at the gates, which he shut for the Sabbath, he'll deal with them by force. Now, Maybe that seems like an, un, I don't know, an unnecessary threat, but it makes sense that he threatens force because he's a governor of the city. He wields the power of the sword. He can arrest people. So he's saying, don't come in or I will arrest you. That is his job though. He's not going beyond his job in threatening something like that. And he confronts the nobles and he tells them, Profaning the Sabbath is the very thing for which God brought disaster upon our fathers. And by doing this, you're kindling God's anger. And just like he set up guards over the storehouses, he now sets up guards, the Levites, by the gates to make sure the Sabbath is kept. And again, he asks God to remember his actions for good. So much like we asked for this first, for the first portion. What would it be like if we just canceled the Sunday gathering, invited someone else, invited an opponent to live in this house, in this space, much like that? What if, what if every day was a work day? What if every single day was a work day? What would that, what would that do to us? What would that do to the world? What kind, of, what kind of fruit would that bear in our lives? If every day someone said, what are you doing tomorrow? Oh, just working. What are you doing tomorrow? Ah, oh, just working. And on and on and on it went. Would we be more productive? 
Would businesses, would they be more lucrative? What if the, what if, what if the Dow Jones, the NASDAQ, what if the, the, the Standard & Poor's, what if that were every day? What if that were on every single day? What would it cost us? How would that catch up with us? So what we see here is Israel is choosing, is choosing commerce over communion. What happens to our world when no Sabbath exists? When no day of rest exists? It crumbles. I tend to, um, I tend to think of cities as if they were people. Um, you know, New York, LA, Miami, Dallas, Chicago. What kind, of, what kind of person would Houston be? Maybe, maybe a confident, eclectic, overeating workaholic <laughs> who runs on stress and drives too fast. Is that close? Our city has a lot of high-stress jobs that are on 24 hours a day. We have a medical center that doesn't stop. Oil and gas, energy, just to name a few. And people come to this city to work. And to work in Houston is to live. Therefore, we, have a, we do have a real opportunity as the people of God to, to live as God's Sabbath people and offer the people in our city rest. And I know I said it before, but let's just, let's just remind ourselves. What does it mean to offer rest to other people? To people who are lonely, offering rest looks like friendship because it unburdens people from loneliness. To unburden people from hunger, to feed them, to feed each other. To forgive those who are burdened by sin, that is real rest. And we have all of that and more to offer the world in the name of Christ. We have all of that to offer to the world. Real rest. If Israel keeps the Sabbath, the temple will be a thriving center of worship for all the surrounding lands. And that is the same for us, even here at Sojourn Heights. Just like we gather for the good of the world, we rest and we offer rest for the good of the world. The world doesn't know how to rest. Our city doesn't know how to rest. In fact, maybe working every day in Houston might sound really good to some. Let's keep reading. Verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. So God's command to refrain from intermarriage, I want to make this clear. God's command to refrain from intermarriage has nothing to do with race. Nothing to do with race. God is not inherently prejudiced or hoping to keep Israel away from certain people. To be a Moabite, 
to be an Ammonite was to worship a God who was not Yahweh. People groups were synonymous with the gods that they worshiped. So God's probation of intermarriage was given so that Israel would not abandon him in their worship and begin to worship other gods. Intermarriage had been an issue for a few generations, but as Nehemiah notices, it's because it's become so bad that many of the children of these mixed marriages could not speak the language of Judah. They were not being taught God's word. Therefore, they couldn't speak God's word. They didn't understand God's word. Now, this is really important because Israel is the Abrahamic people of God and the bearer of God's word in the world. And so if, if Israel doesn't know God's word, then she can't understand or administer it in the world. She can't give it to the world, which is what she was always meant to do. Consequently, there can be no peace in Jerusalem if people don't know God's word, if people can't speak God's word, can't declare or proclaim God's word. There can be no worship of the true God or the declaration of his excellencies, his promises, his love, his commands. And so Nehemiah says that marrying persons who don't worship Yahweh as the one God is actually the very thing that, that drove Solomon into sin. The king of Israel, who, who was beloved by God. And then, of course, funnily enough, he chases Sanballat out of the city, who, as we find out, whose daughter turns out to be married to Eliashib's grandson. So we've got the two greatest enemies of Israel, both married into the family of the high priest. Just a lot of corruption going on. So in light of this, what, this, we have to sit with this one for a second because I feel like it's so part of us that it'll be hard to sort of wrap our minds around. But what if we as a people just stopped studying God's word? What if we took every word of this gathering that was, a, that was tied to the word of God and took it out? What if we didn't read to our children from the Bible? What if we didn't read with them? What if we just slowly forgot about God's word over a generation and just let the biblical stories that we've told our children just sort of fade into fable and myth? Would we still be would we still truly be the people of God? We are a word-centered people. We see by God's word. We live by God's word. We live by his commandments. His word hidden in our hearts actually keeps us from sin. Our words are formed by his words. And when we share his word with others, we're offering life and the God of life. We're offering the true worship of the one true God. Just think about that. What if we, what if we just stopped speaking in the language of God, stopped singing hymns, stopped speaking to each other in psalms, stopped quoting and memorizing scripture, 
Before we close, I wanted to talk a bit about Nehemiah's response to sin in, um, in this last portion. I'm fairly sure that if I polled everyone on how Nehemiah has treated people, especially in this third portion, we'd probably have a spectrum of responses. He beat them up, he cursed them, he pulled out their hair. Seems extreme. But I do, think that, I do think that before we critique Nehemiah, I think it would be worthwhile to at least consider if this instant calls to mind any other particular moments of discipline in Scripture. Do Nehemiah's actions make us think of Moses when he, when he ground the golden calf into powder and made Israel drink it? or when he struck the rock with his staff sinfully against God's command? Does it remind us of when Jesus returned to his disciples in Gethsemane and found them asleep and was upset and said, you couldn't, you couldn't wait for just one hour? What about when Paul told the Corinthian church to throw out the sexually immoral young man from their midst? Is there, is there some connection there? Maybe Nehemiah's action could make us think of Jesus knocking over tables and driving everyone out of the temple because true worship was being corrupted. Maybe some of those, maybe some of those, and there are more, but maybe some of those help us to sort of frame Nehemiah's actions in a different way. Nehemiah has seen God turn his people and their land over to foreign invasion, which was not a bloodless endeavor. He knows what's at stake. If Solomon fell similarly, if their fathers faced disaster in these sins, could, could actually, could this discipline be appropriate? Like, I know what you're facing if you don't remain holy and devoted to the Lord. So even as we're talking about this, what do I, what do I hope that maybe we might take or that you might take this morning from just this little kind of sidebar on Nehemiah's discipline. If I, could, if I could state it most simply, it's that God's discipline, just like his love, is sophisticated. It's not a one size fits all every time. And we can understand that, I think. We think about our own relationships, how we treat our children, how we treat those who we're responsible for, how we treat our families, our brothers, our sisters, our nieces, our nephews. We don't come down hard on our children every time they disobey, but sometimes we do. We don't discipline a five-year-old as if they were 50 or vice versa. When humans sin, God doesn't do nothing nor are we as God's people supposed to do nothing. We discern, we use wisdom and insight, and that makes our discipline sophisticated. Here's something else I think is helpful. I'm not gonna read it, but I encourage you all to, to go back and read the opening verses of, of Ezra chapter nine. It's in this chapter that the people are guilty as well of intermarriage, and as a response, Ezra tears his clothes and pulls out his own hair. 
Same thing that Nehemiah did to the offending Jews. Now here's, this is important. Here's the difference. Ezra is a priest. And as a priest, he mediates between God and man. Man and God. He takes the punishment for intermarriage upon himself. And he does this by ripping his clothes and his hair. To, to pull hair, it signified a humiliation. It signified a loss of glory. It wasn't, just about, it wasn't about pain as much as it was about a loss of glory. Scripture, women, Scripture calls your hair your glory. When we pull that out, it's pulling out glory. Nehemiah, though, it's different. He's a governor. He's not a priest. He wields the sword. So instead of taking on sin, he, he inflicts punishment. He's the one who is inflicting. He reprimands those who have sinned. Nehemiah is not here. He's not disciplining peers in this case. He's disciplining the king's subjects. He's a magistrate who is arresting civilians, not a brother rebuking other brothers. If he were a priest or a pastor, his action would not be appropriate. Because he's a governor, it actually is within his right, within his duty to do this. So as we come to the end of this story, sojourn. Nehemiah has drawn Israel back into alignment with her oath. As we read, the people are cleansed, reestablished in their work. And one last time, Nehemiah asks the Lord to remember him. So I think in all three asks to be remembered, we can see that Nehemiah is actually acting like an anointed leader who will give a strict account of what he's done. He is one who knows that he's going to be judged more strictly as those who have gover governed other people. Remember me for the good I've done, he says. In real ways, Nehemiah is looking at his actions going, I think they're good. Remember me for the good I've done. But I think as we read it, we kind of feel like we haven't crescendoed <laughs> It felt like in, in 12, it felt like Israel did reach a crescendo, and then we had a regression, and then it just ends. Oh, everything's back to normal. We're worshiping again like we did. The Levites are taken care of. We're observing the Sabbath. We're obeying God's word. No question, Nehemiah's work has been reformative. It just hasn't been transformative. He's a good governor, He's just not able to turn the people completely. The people of Israel have become, truly have become Advent people through this story. People longing for a greater Nehemiah. A greater governor who will come to redeem them in a fullness that they don't know right now. And here we stand today, just like them, just like the people of Israel, in our sinfulness, and yet the governor that they hoped for, the governor that they trusted Yahweh to bring, has come to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he has not only turned our hearts, he's transplanted them. 
given us hearts of flesh and not of stone. And he doesn't, he hasn't taken his law and just shown it to us. He's written it on our hearts, written it on our very bodies. He's not only roused our spirits, he's given us his spirit. He is the true temple in which we gather. The Sabbath sun, the word of God made flesh. He's the greater Ezra, a priest who has taken our sin upon himself and yet paid for it in full as if he were a civilian underneath Nehemiah's sword. He's the greater Solomon, a king who has eyes and heart for only one bride though, the church. He's the greater Nehemiah, a master builder who is constructing a new Jerusalem whose gates will never be shut with himself as the cornerstone and his church will not fail. Sojourn, this, in this last chapter, this is a great call to faithfulness. In some ways, the situation has hardly changed for us from Nehemiah's day, and that might have us asking, is Christ's death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the work of the Holy Spirit powerless? Certainly not. As Paul says, we are a new creation in Christ and being transformed from one degree of glory to the next as we behold the glory of Christ. Though we remain weak in our sin, we are in Christ and we are God's fellow workers, God's building. The Lord is still building his church. We are gladly invited to join him. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, we thank you for, Lord, your word. Lord, let us not stray from it. We thank you for your Sabbath rest and this Lord's day that we enjoy today. Lord, may we not grow cold to it. Lord, we thank you for this covenant renewal gathering. May we not take it for granted. Lord, keep us in faithfulness to you by the power of your spirit that's at work within us to apply to our hearts all that Christ bought and paid for with his own life, his resurrection, and now ruling in his ascension. How we do pray that you would make us, Lord, a people who care so much for the world that our gathering is not just for ourselves, but for everyone who doesn't know you. That our Sabbath rest would not be just for ourselves, but for everyone who does need rest. And that we would be a people looking, eager to offer rest to others. And Lord, that we would be a people that are so captivated, so in need of your word that no other food will do and no other food can substitute. Oh God, we need you. Oh God, we trust you. And we thank you for Christ, through whom all of your promises are yes and amen. And though we're so grateful to know that your church will not fail. It means every effort that we make is worth it. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we ask all of these things in your name. Amen.